Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McCavely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 68th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning from the past week. So good morning to you, Matt. It's good to be back. Welcome back, my friend. Yeah, how was it solo last week? Weird. (laughs) (laughs) You feel right? No sounding board? You know, yeah, exactly. We didn't have our normal banter. Yeah. You know, we just didn't have the opportunity to, you know, hash out some of those things that we usually find. Yeah. Yeah, I know, it just it was abnormal, but it doesn't happen very often. Right, right. Well, I'm glad to be back and get back to our normal schedule. We should be uh, pretty good for the rest of the year in terms of having both of us on here, I think. Just your honeymoon, I think. Yeah, just the honeymoon. Yep. yep. And if the, that still happens. If it still happens <laughs> at the end of November. Optimistic. Optimistic. Yes. Keep yes. the fingers crossed. Um, anyways, we'll jump back to our normal routine and go through the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on October 19th, and the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index up 2.88% for the month and up 7.2% for the year. The Dow up 2.3% for October and down 0.24% for the year. The NASDAQ up 2.79% for October and up 27.93% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index up 8.13% for October and down now only 2.24% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States up 2.82% for the month and down 3.68% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.12%, the two-year Treasury yielding 0.15%, and the 10-year Treasury is yielding 0.15%. 8%. That's been coming up, Mark. Yeah, it has been. I want to say roughly a month ago, approximately the yield on the 10-year was 0.7. Now we're up to 0.8. Mm-hmm. You know, you're definitely seeing some upward movement on that. Right. And it doesn't seem like a lot, but on a percentage basis, it's, it's pretty a big mood. It's big a move. lot. Yeah. It's a lot. So it's something that definitely we'll keep an eye on. And the small caps this yeah, month. Yeah, and small cap performance. So Coming alive. Yeah. As we said before, typically out of... Uh, periods of economic stress, you tend to see small caps outperform a little bit. And we've been waiting for that to happen. And it finally seems like it is happening. So we'll see if they can sustain it through the rest of the year. And when those periods happen, market happens quick. Mm -hmm. And they move fast. fast. Yeah, Yeah, very fast. So um, just a couple headlines and current events from the past week. Earnings season kicked off last week with the banks reporting mixed results, though I would say, Matt, that most of the companies reported stronger than expected numbers. I would agree with that. Um, According to BMO Research, for the market as a whole, Q3 earnings are expected to be down 20%, which is less bad than July's 25% forecasted decline and improved from the Q2 drop of 30%. Yeah, and I think the, the benchmark, in my opinion, is pretty low for a lot of these companies. Yeah, I think it remains to be low. Yeah, which I'm still kind of puzzles me a little bit because companies have done fairly well the past two quarters with everything going on. Yeah, I mean, we talked about how much uh, disproportionately large size companies have benefited from COVID. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yep. 
Um, so earnings season will hit its peak in a week with the bigger names such as Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook reporting between uh, the 27th of October and the 29th of October. Uh, next, global COVID cases seem to be on a uptick the past few weeks. So and in addition, uh, two high-profile late-stage clinical trials were put on pause due to safety concerns. Um, but Pfizer announced on October 16th that it might apply for an emergency FDA approval for its COVID vaccine by late November. So we'll keep an eye on that. Okay. Retail sales continue to come in stronger than expected uh, over the past couple of months. They've done that. So um, they came in at one point plus one point nine percent and the consensus was plus point eight percent. So that is a good sign for the economy moving forward. Um, used car prices also rose an amazing 10.3% in September. That's mind-boggling. Yeah, as people move to the suburbs and find that they need at least one car or maybe two. So um, that's a pretty big jump, and that was from Braver Capital Management. Um, and obviously, the big-ticket item, the presidential election, is just a few weeks away. Um, we are still expecting market volatility heading into the election on Tuesday, November 3rd. The final presidential debate, or I guess the second and final presidential debate, is this Thursday. Um, so that is coming up rather quickly. Get the popcorn ready. Yeah. Yeah. Get on your couch. Get the popcorn and soda ready. Might need to get the popcorn and soda ready for a couple weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with that statement. Um, but I'll go ahead and start uh, this week with tweets, articles, and research from the week that caught our eyes. And this was research from the Federal Reserve on October 12th, um, and it's titled Predicting is Hard. <laughs> so as we have talked about several times on and this, this podcast. this is the Federal Reserve. Yeah, and this is the Fed. Yeah. So three years ago, on September 20th of 2017, the Federal Reserve released a forecast for the end of 2020 for its key short-term interest rate and for our country's unemployment rate. Their predictions... The Fed funds rate would be at 2.9%, and the jobless rate would be at 4.2%. The actual numbers as of today, the Fed funds rate is 0 to 0.25%, and our jobless rate is 7.9%. So for an institution that is respected as much as the Fed, even they can't predict things correctly. So again, just going back to the point that it's really, really hard to predict things. So whenever you hear people making predictions, take it with a grain of salt or don't take any salt at all, in my opinion. <laughs> I love it. I love it. One thing I'd love to throw out there, and I'm going to give a plug for the uh, Dayton Development Coalition. Uh, I'm a recent member of the Dayton Rotary Club. And the leader of that organization, Jeff Hoagland, um, was the guest speaker yesterday during our virtual weekly meeting. And one of the tidbits of information he threw out there, Mark, was, you know, the jobless uh, unemployment rate in the whole U.S. He quoted what you did, the 8% figure. Mm -hmm. And then he said for Ohio, though, as a whole state, we are higher than the national average, closer to 10%. But then he had the data that broke it down by cities within Ohio. And Dayton is only at like five and a half, 5.4 wow. or 5.5. So Dayton is a lot lower than the national average for the unemployment rate. Isn't that something? And that's interesting. And I think that that, I mean, not to use unemployment data f to take advantage of people, but 
I think when, you know, areas like Dayton are trying to recruit more people to the area, they should use that and say, hey, during times of economic stress, you know, we're not like these huge cities, even in Ohio or New York or California, where, you know, unemployment didn't get that bad as the natural national average in these cities. And I think, you know, using that would pull even more people out of these big cities to smaller Midwestern cities or suburbs, really where we are. I would agree. Um, you know what we need to do? We'll get Jenna to contact Jeff and let's have him on the podcast. Yeah, that'd be I fun. Think we, we should talk about that. Yeah, okay. yeah, because I think that's just another statistic that's going to drive more people out of these huge cities. And he also talked about uh, growth rates within cities within Ohio, and Dayton was one of the highest growth rates the last several years. Yeah. Economically. I thought that was interesting, too. Yeah, it's good. We needed it from the past decade, I yeah. would say. Right? Yeah. All right, we'll have Jenna yeah. reach out to him. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, the second thing that I had was an article written by Jason Zweig on October 9th in the Wall Street Journal, and this was titled, Your Cash Earned Zip, Zilch, Nada, Don't Make It Worse. <laughs> And Jason outlines how low interest rates, how low interest rates are and how that affects people's decisions on deciding what to do with their money. So I just wanted to kind of go through this and highlight some of the main points of the article. Um, so he gets right into it and says that $100,000 in a savings account will earn, if you're lucky, $220 in interest income in 2020. That's $1,500 less than you would need to outpace inflation this year. And this is from JP Morgan. After rising steadily in 2018 and 2019, the yields at online cash accounts have collapsed, leaving investors with almost nowhere to turn for safe income exceeding 1%. And I can attest to this because I have a, um, a Marcus online, quote unquote, high, high yielding yield. savings account. And it's gone from 1.7%, and I think it's down to 0.6% or 0.8%, maybe. So, again, like we've been saying, you know, if people want greater than 1% return on their money, it's not going to be in these cash instruments. Nope. We're just in the environment where it's just not possible right now. I don't now. see that changing um, anytime soon. Right, right. So he goes on to say, as recently as 2010, the yield on your savings account would have nearly kept up with the cost of living. For most of the years from 1985 through 2007, the return on cash resoundingly beat inflation. And I think people are so, um, I guess, encouraged to have a decent amount of money in cash and bonds, but they don't realize that we're not in the same environment as we were back in the early 2000s. Agreed. Um, it's just a different environment, and it's not going to give you the same thing as it once did. Agreed. Um, you know, so generating income is extremely, extremely difficult in this type of environment. And I think, again, people are going to realize that the Fed has said they're going to keep interest rates low for the next two years at least. So that money, if people want a decent return, it has to flow back into the stock market. Maybe people are going to buy real estate, but I think in my opinion, it's easier for most people to invest in stocks rather than deal with real estate. Be a landlord. Right, exactly. So it's just one of the very few places that people can go to get a decent return on their money right now. I, I, I agree with everything you're saying, Mark. I mean, I think people have to realize that if they keep that money in cash for an extended period of time, and though they might not see their balance drop when they get their statement over time, their purchasing power mm -hmm. is being eroded. Right, right. And that's a tough thing for some people to get their arms around. Right, 
Yeah, I completely agree. But with that's that. the reality of it. Yeah. Today at banks, the national average interest rate on savings accounts is 0.16%. According to depositaccounts.com, the average one year certificate of deposit yields 0.46%. U.S. investors have amassed $4.79 trillion in money market funds, says Crane Data, a firm in Westboro, Massachusetts, that tracks cash accounts. Yet the average money fund yields a piddling 0.03% in interest income. Oh, wow. Three basis points. <laughs> so everywhere you look, checking, savings, CDs, money market funds, you're getting nothing. Um, investing for income in this environment is like trying to squeeze water out of a fistful of sand at high noon in Death Valley. <laughs> <laughs> It is. It, it really is. I mean, what other options do people have right now for income other than investing in stocks that have consistently over the past 25 years paid a dividend? Uh, you're just not. You're not getting it right now. Yeah. And the other thing with that is, yeah, the stocks may maintain their dividend, but and I think we're going to get into it here in a little bit. But if you're invested in banks that have paid a dividend for the past 25 years, the banks are down 25 percent year to date. So yeah, so my cautionary uh, line I want to throw out there is do not, I would not recommend making an investment decision on a stock just because of the dividend. Right. That's a dangerous road. Exactly. Especially with these energy and like E&P companies, um, you know, the dividend yield looks great at eight or 10%, but, but it's not sustainable probably. No. And it's if that you, yield for a reason, you look into their earnings and their expected forecasts that eventually that that's going to have they to can't, get They cut. can't sustain it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he goes on to say, you could buy, for instance, uh, stocks in electric utilities, banks, and other financial companies, real estate investment trusts, or master limited partnerships in the energy industry. Oh, there you go. All offer the promise of high dividend income, often 4% and up. In recent years, especially since the financial crisis of 08-09, all have been described as bond-like by promoters touting their supported safe, or excuse me, their supposed safety. This year has been subject has subjected these assets to a wholesale slaughter. In the first nine months of 2020, utilities lost 6%, real estate 7%, financials 20%, and master limited partnerships 49%, as measured by leading exchange-traded funds that invest in those sectors. So what does that 5% yield mean when you're down 49%? Here we go. The performance numbers that I just mentioned include the dividend income these investments <laughs> distribute. So even after earning big dividends, investors suffered even bigger losses. The income didn't come with safety. It came with the price of safety. I missed you last week, man. I know. I know. I miss being here. <sighs> Talk about this stuff all day. This is great. One of Wall Street's favorite adages is don't fight the Fed. That means that when the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, which generally hurts the prices of stocks and bonds, investors should be conservative. When the central bank is cutting rates or keeping them low, investors should be aggressive. And you've talked about this several times. Again, we're in a easing period, whether the Fed wants to call it that or not. We're in a period of low interest rates. So this should be a favorable environment for risk on assets such as stocks. Yes. Right? Yes. If you invested, uh, excuse me, $10,000 in a 10-year treasury note at this week's prices, it would yield you less than $77 in income over the next 12 months. Even a 30-year treasury will yield only $156 in annual income on a $10,000 investment. It's just not going to cut it. 
People oh. aren't going to be able to afford to keep their money in these places for that long. No, and I'm just going to throw this out there. I think the low end, uh, the short end of the yield curve, meaning money market rates or say a six month T-bill, that stuff's going to remain low. Mm -hmm. But I think you're uh, over time here, you're going to start to have upward pressure on these 10 years and these 30 year um, bond rates because eventually they can't keep raising money at these low of interest rates. People are not going to buy them. Right. So right. Exactly. I'm just throwing it out there. I think over the next couple of years, you're going to see a steepening yield curve on the on the far end of the curve. Yeah. That's my two cents. Yeah. Um, Jason goes on to say, fooling yourself into thinking that you can find absolute safety in any yielding as any asset yielding more than 1% is a terrible idea. We live in a 1%, if not sub 1% world right now. Nothing you can do to change that. And I think that's, again, just people coming to the realization of the environment that we're in. And I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. No. I, I mean, when in history has the Fed telegraphed monetary policy going out multiple years? I don't think it hasn't ever. happened. Yeah. It, it, so, you know, people just have to, I think, come to that realization that it's just a tough environment for this stuff right now. Yep. You know? Yep. Um, and, and especially the people that think that, you know, as I get older and older, then I need to get more and more conservative with my money, where in my opinion, that's actually getting more and more risky with your money. Yeah, that, that old adage, I don't think works anymore. Yeah, especially if you have longevity, if you have someone who retires at 65 and they live to 100, <laughs> you're doing a huge disservice to yourself, especially with these low rates to be heavily, heavily allocated in, in the bond portfolio right yeah, now. Yeah, don't get me on my soapbox of these lifestyle funds. Right. Because <laughs> that just leads right down that path. To me. We'll skip that for this week. Bring it back one day. <laughs> Listeners, if you want to hear some good banter, pull up lifestyle, lifestyle funds. funds topic with me and we'll see what happens. Target dates. Yep. You can earn 1.06% on up to $10,000 invested in I-bonds, inflation-protected U.S. savings bonds. You can shop around for saving accounts that yield almost 1% or CDs that yield a pinch more. But you have to recognize that anything above that comes with risks, and risks have consequences. So I think the best way of thinking about this, Matt, is asking yourself the question, what's your goal for this money? If the answer is maximizing growth, there really is nowhere else to put it other than stocks. If your answer is for a rainy day fund or near-term expenses, then you're just going to have to accept the fact that money will earn virtually nothing in this environment. And it's okay to have these buckets in the same account. You know, it doesn't have to be one or the other, but you know, this environment's going to be here for a little while and people need to come to terms with it. I absolutely agree with you. I'm glad you picked that article by Jason. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. Um, the next one that I had was an article, um, or excuse me, a blog post written by Tadas Visconta on his blog, Abnormal Returns, on October 5th, uh, titled Incremental Solutions in Pursuit of a Clear Goal. And he talks about people searching for perfection with how to deal with COVID and kind of relates it back to people trying to achieve perfection in their financial lives. So he pretty much says, you know, by doing this, it's not going to stop COVID. But if you combine that with other measures, then it'll do better than just doing one thing, right? Okay. Um, but nothing's going to be perfect because you can't make everybody do all of these things all at the same time, right? So yeah, you the 15 days to flatten the curve thing. Yeah, exactly. So it kind of relates this back to uh, your financial lives. And he says uh, something like this, doing the important things adequately will serve you well. This is true whether it comes to avoiding the worst of the coronavirus pandemic or in your financial life. 
Too many people will spend too much time searching for perfection while, while good will suffice. You don't need to spend your time searching for the highest yield on your bank balance when refinancing your mortgage will save you more money over the long run. You don't need access to institutional quality investment products. They haven't served institutions all that well. The fact is you already have access to nearly zero fee index ETFs that will provide you broad exposure to the world's capital markets. You don't have to spend your time agonizing over your investments. Time not spent watching CNBC or this blog can be used in ways that will hopefully make you happier and more fulfilled. Perfection is a pipe dream. Op optimization is fleeting. Life is messy. Chasing the latest and greatest in your financial life gets old quickly. Satisfactory incremental solutions layered one on top of the other in pursuit of a clear goal can provide you with wiggle room. That slack in the system can help you survive, if not thrive. It will make for outcomes you can reasonably live with. And in today's chaotic world, that is probably the best anyone can hope for. So I thought that was really good by him and just kind of bringing things back to the basics that nothing is going to be perfect in life, whether you're running a business, whether you're investing in stocks, whether then you're dealing with a pandemic, you're never going to get to that perfect level that you're going to be completely comfortable in, right? So the best thing that you can do is just take baby steps and knock things out one at a time and not spend too much time obsessing over this stuff where it's going to put you know, a dampen on your day. Um, you know, I think people, again, like he said, need to accept uh, good instead of perfection, um, because I think ultimately it's going to make them happier. I think you, you, you said it extremely well um, to kind of prove everything you said. You know, you and I don't sit there and watch the financial news outlets here at the office. Mm -mm. Why? We want to derive our own conclusions. Right. And a lot of the financial news outlets these days are on the shock value train, mm -hmm. meaning they tend to invite guests that make very outlandish statements, predictions to grab some headlines. And in our opinion, we want to come up with our own investment thesis. Right. And up until this point, that has served us well, and we're going to continue to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree. Um, I'll turn it over to you for a couple notes before we get into the financial planning topic of the week. Thank you, Mark. I got two for listeners. First is from Argus Research on October 14th, and I'm going to quote the research note. I think you're going to like this. S&P 500 index pulled within 3% of its all-time high of 3588 from September 2nd. We are encouraged that every sector is positive in the quarter to date. Also encouraging, Mark, is the technology sector, usually the bully on the block. It's in sixth place so far here in Q4, up 3.6%. And, and again, mind you, it's still up 27.93% year to date. There you go. Continue. I love this. <laughs> With some, and remember, but, but Mark, it's expensive. I'm sorry. I'm getting <laughs> off. I'm getting off at a, at a rabbit hole. With some long overlooked sectors moving into leadership roles in the October advance, breath is strengthening to support the advance. End quote. Mark your comments. That is not bearish. Other sectors. Is that, is that the definition sector, of a bear market? Yeah. Sector rotations and other other sectors other than tech leading. That's not bearish. That is hovering around healthy all time highs for most of the sectors. Not bearish. 
So, you know, people continue to pound the table that how the world's going to end both ways if Trump wins or if Biden wins. And I'm sitting here, I'm looking at all of my data and I'm like, this stuff, this, this, this is cash not on the indication. Gotta find a home. It's not indication of a bear market. It's not indication of an unhealthy market. We're seeing small caps start to outperform that they have unper- underperformed for a very long period of time, especially all of this year. Yep. So names are rotating into smaller names rather than large cap tech. And you just saw that, you know, it's tech is in sixth place quarter to date at 3.6% where you have industrials starting to outperform. You have transportation stocks starting to outperform. This stuff is all stuff that happens when you're in good times in the market. Preach, people preach, just need baby. to realize that. I, I think. love it. Again, I don't want to sound like I'm so one-sided, but it's just like block out the, the noise and look at the data. Stuff. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's that simple. So well, I got one more. Okay. I'm just going to add fuel to the fire, baby. Here we go. <laughs> This is from Lund Loop Research Note from Brian Lund. He has a weekly note he produces and sends out on Saturday mornings. This is from October 17th. Quote, the semiconductor ETF that tracks the sector, uh, it's the Van Eck Vectors Semiconductor ETF, made a recent all-time high before pulling back and bouncing off support. End quote. Mark, that sector has shown leadership for most of the year. I find this encouraging. Your thoughts and comments. Yeah, I do too. Again, it's the new Dow theory with our evolution from an industrial-based economy to a tech-based economy is that, you know, over if you look at a chart, you overlay a semiconductor ETF like you just mentioned, ticker symbol SMH with the S&P 500 tends to be a leading indicator. So when semiconductors are making all-time highs, to me, that's a pretty good indication that the market's not far behind. Yeah, the overall market. Right. Yes. And just so uh, listeners, we can be very specific. We are not giving an official opinion on that specific um, ETF. We are using it to rep, uh, represent that sector of the market mm-hmm. and talking about our opinion that I think it's a little bit of a leading indicator as we were, were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Just another another check for the bulls, I think, in my opinion. There you go, my friend. Yeah. All right, back to you for the financial planning topic of the week. Yeah, so um, I know this is probably a little bit of a longer one uh, in terms of where we're at, but I'll try to get through this. Where are we at in terms of time, Jenna? 25, okay. So it'll be a little longer, I think, than than normal, but um, but we'll get through this. So this article was on a article based on ThinkAdvisor uh, on September 30th titled 16 Big Estate Planning Mistakes Clients Make um, Advisor's Advice by Ginger Salza. And the article covers several estate planning topics that people often don't think about when they go through major life events and overlooking these items I think can have massive consequences. So be a good one. Yeah. So I like this article a lot because it outlines how finance just isn't about investments and retirement planning. And there's much, much more to it. So this goes through a couple of recommendations from different advisors across the country uh, that got placed in this article. So number one is not updating beneficiary designation designations. Forgetting to update beneficiary designations after a life event, i.e. divorce, and naming a minor child as a contingent beneficiary. You got divorced for a reason, and an 18-year-old is probably not prepared to handle a potentially large sum of money responsibly. So I think this is, again, one of the biggest things that we've seen, Matt, is that after divorces, clients uh, haven't updated beneficiaries. So this is stuff that advisors should bring up with their clients constantly because, you know, 
clients with so much going on in life and as chaotic of a year 2020 has been, obviously not everyone's going to remember to call their advisor and say, hey, I need to update the beneficiary designation or, hey, I updated my trust or, hey, I moved. Here's my new address. So it's just important to every year just to go through the basics of, hey, has anything changed over the past year? Do we need to update anything? Yep. Um, You know, other life events is like getting married, uh, having another child, um, you know, uh, having a beneficiary that passes away, those type of things. You need to stay up with that because, again, probate process is very, very uh, long expensive and time consuming. So um, very important to make sure your beneficiary designations are up to date. And now is not a bad time to do it in open enrollment for most people. Yeah, I mean, how we got them to do that with our practices, you and Aaron Kramer developed um, a review meeting checklist that at least once a year Mm -hmm. that we like to go through with clients. And it's on that list, Mm -hmm. right? So we can't mess that up. But you know, it's just amazing how many people we end up meeting. And their beneficiaries are from, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, number two is putting it off, putting it off altogether. You would think that wealthy people have all of their ducks in a row, but you would be surprised. I have met with people worth well over $10 million that do not even have a will. Yes. So an example of this is my fiance, my fiance Kenzie, the other day told me that, um, Chadwick, uh, what is his last name? He just passed away. He was the Black Panther. Oh, yeah. Um, great actor. Yeah, great actor. Do you, Chadwick uh, We're looking at Bozeman, I think. Chadwick Bozeman. She, um, she told me that he passed away without a will. So they've been going through you probate. Know, probate and all that stuff. So, you know, wealthy people aren't aren't protected by this, you know? Yeah, and, and I'll give you another good example that's local here to Dayton was the, um, the owner of the Mercedes-Benz dealer in town. Uh, Bob Ross, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't have a will and he passed and all that stuff got tied up in probate. And, you know, this is all public knowledge. Mm-hmm. It was in the Dayton Daily News. And, you know, they had uh, they had problems continuing to run the dealership during the six month probate period. Right. Right. Because everything right. was tied up. Yeah. So just be just I think the conception, the, the perception that just because someone's wealthy, that they got their act together financially mm-hmm. is not always true. Right, exactly. And now's a good time to do it when you have more time on your hands because of COVID. Um, you know, there's sites like LegalZoom that you can go and get a will, a living will, um, healthcare power of attorney, and a durable financial power of attorney um, for pretty cheap. I think it's like 220, 250 bucks per couple to yep. get done. And it covers the basics. The basics. Yep. Um, so if you have a more complex financial situation, then probably sitting down with an attorney would probably be better. But for most people, I think LegalZoom would suffice. So people can check that out. Yep. Um, the next one is no health care powers of attorney in place for unmarried couples, particularly problematic for same-sex couples in certain jurisdictions. In emergency, partners can be denied ability to make health care directives for each other. This is a biggie mm-hmm. because I think a lot of times it's, well, okay, just because you know, I'm with this person doesn't necessarily mean that if a situation happens where you want to make their medical decisions... Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily the case without a document like that. No, no, it's not. And I don't think people realize that just because, you know, you're with somebody um, doesn't mean that you can make that decision. You have to have that legal document on file. So, again, for people that don't know, if, uh, you know, your partner is incapacitated, 
Um, you can have this document on file before that saying that you could make financial decisions on their behalf. Yeah, usually what I recommend to clients is the next time they go to their primary care physician, take a copy of your health care uh, power of attorney and then have it on file. Yeah, absolutely. And then those files these days, a lot of them are connected electronically. Mm -hmm. So like here, I know in, um, in Dayton, the two uh, biggest hospital systems, which is Premier and Kettering, they both use the same um, uh, client uh, software, Epic, I believe mm -hmm. it's called, to where um, they can pull up your record and know that if you visited that other hospital system, they're going to know generally what occurred. Okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And it's no different from having this healthcare POA on file. Yeah, that's very smart. Um, next one is probate problems. A client passed away this year, or excuse me, last year, and in reviewing their beneficiary designations, they forgot about an old annuity that named the client's estate as beneficiary. Assets left directly or indirectly to the estate may be subject to probate. The probate process can cause delays, expense, access by creditors, and a potential disinheritance. Probate can be avoided by simply naming beneficiaries directly by name. And we don't have to go too much more into this, Max. We kind of already talked about yeah, that. Yeah, I just want to throw out there, if you can name specific individuals, do that. It makes the process a lot easier. Yes. The only side comment there. Yep. Um, next mistake, not using a corporate trustee. And I'd be interested to get your opinion on this, Matt. Many of my clients have named trustees that they will personally outlive or they ask someone who is 2,000 miles away to be the trustee for them. What happens when they need to get their home prepped for sale or interview a realtor? How do they handle transfer paperwork from multiple custodians when they are in different states? What about capacity concerns? A corporate trustee will most always be able to manage better than a family member. What's your opinion on that? I differ a little bit on this. I prefer to have a list of three upwards of four um, priority names that would mm -hmm. be successor trustees. The The only issue I have with some of the corporate trustees is it's a very sterile, informal uh, process on mm -hmm. that side. And when you have the death of a, of a, say, a parent, and you're dealing with uh, a sterile, um, you know, trust officer at XYZ trust company, man, that's just not a very uh, warm and fuzzy feeling bedside manner is usually not the best with yeah. those situations yeah the other thing i'll say is you know a lot of times if you get this stuff set up right and you get it titled properly it's not that hard for the successor trustee to make it happen right if it's set up properly mm -hmm. and i think having a list of either close friends or family members in a priority order different ages mm -hmm. if you can get away with that would be my preference if you don't obviously you have to use a corporate trustee right okay um, the next one is previous marriage trip ups so titling assets in joint tenancy when both spouses have children from a previous marriage effectively the first spouse to die has disinherited his or her children people don't think this through though we talk about this all the time behind the scenes, don't we? Yeah, yeah. So you have, you know, uh, a couple has three kids and they get divorced and remarried and they have a joint account with their new partner on it. First to die loses. First to die loses. And the kids get nothing. Um, you know, so that's one and of the, the theory things. that, well, my the surviving spouse will take, we'll care, take of care of the other of it. kids. It might happen. It might, but it might not. It might not. And legally, they have no right to the money. The kids have no right to the money if it's titled that way. Yep. So... Just something to think about. 
Um, second to last one that I wanted to talk about is conflicts between documents. So assets not titled correctly, for example, a house or brokerage accounts not titled in the name of their living trust. Also, conflicts in who is named in different documents. For example, the trust names child one as successor trustee. The will names child two as executor and power of attorney names child one and two. <laughs> so you have to make sure that all your documents are consistent with each other and they're uh, quote unquote talking to each other. Yeah, one thing I'm not a fan of, and again, it's all the client's decision. I'm mm -hmm. not a fan when you have multiple people as co's, like co-trustees or co-executors, yeah. because the logistical nightmare of getting all those documents signed and processed and getting them to agree on stuff is not fun for mm. the optics of what we see behind the scenes. Right. So if someone directly asks me my feelings about co's, co-trustees, co-executors, no. 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 No, not at all. I think it's one way to get around that if you have two kids, for example. Um, just we'll take simple power of attorneys. One is the healthcare power of attorney and the other is the financial power of attorney. That's just an example of how to break it up and try to mitigate feelings being hurt. There you go. Something like that. There you go. Right. Um, the last one is charity complexities. So this advisor says, I have a client who has intentions to give half of their estate, about $6.5 to charity. Their former estate planning attorney recommended giving their taxable accounts to charity and their IRAs to humans. Why? This is backwards. Why? <laughs> because charities are able to cash out IRAs free of tax. It makes sense to give those assets to charity. On the other hand, it makes sense to give the taxable accounts to humans as the beneficiaries currently get a step up in basis which could change depending on tax proposals, but that's another story. And the way it is now is that beneficiaries get stepped up cost basis uh, inheriting taxable investment accounts. Yeah, brokerage accounts, yeah. So, um, yeah, that makes no sense to me. No, me yep. neither, me neither. So if you are a client that, you know, does have charitable desires, definitely talk with your advisor and an estate planning attorney so that you can properly, in the most tax-efficient way, set up beneficiaries uh, so that everyone benefits. Yeah, and um, I, I, I'm going to sound like a broken record here promoting Aaron. Aaron's our, uh, our paraplanner in-house. The guy's a rock star when it comes to kind of modeling this stuff mm -hmm. in our financial planning software. Yeah. So um, if you uh, don't have a trusted advisor and you're looking for assistance in this type of area, highly encourage you to reach out to the office and uh, get in touch with Aaron. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, anything else from you before we wrap up, Matt? No, we're going to get to the thick of it in the next uh, couple of weeks between the election and earnings season. Mm -hmm. You and I are going to be busy beavers, mm -hmm. but um, I love this time. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to be an interesting couple of weeks, but just remember with when it comes to your investments and portfolios, we just got to make it through the noise here. It's just another short-term event that long-term, we're going to be okay. The world's not going to end on election day. Yes, agreed. So thanks for everyone tuning in to the 68th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast. Hope you all have a great rest of the week, and we will see you next week. Take care.
Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.